Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to our podcast, Agents of Change. I'm your host, Laman Tash. And in this episode, our topic will be about relationship between freedom of speech and safe spaces in our classrooms. Our special guest today is Dr. Michael Roth, who is not only president of the Wesleyan University, but also author of numerous publications on this issue. Dr. Roth, welcome, and we're honored to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So if I have to give quick introduction to this topic, in higher education, in all disciplines, especially in social sciences, it's very important for learners to have freedom of speech, to express themselves, but also to feel safe and comfortable to express themselves. But sometimes these two needs come to tension. And that's why my first question will be about the essence of this tension. Why these two needs are sometimes come or are perceived, I should say, or are shown as contradictory to each other? What is the essence of that, again, perceived or real tension between these two needs? Thank you. It's a great question, and it's a, I think it's an important one these days. Uh, there, there's always been a tension between uh, inclusion and uh, free speech in, in the sense that someone's speech could make you feel less included. And if they have to adjust their speech so do you, that you feel more included, they may find that adjustment friendly and no big deal and not a compromise of their freedom. But they might also find that um, they can't speak the way they're used to speaking because you have to, the other person has to feel included. So I think this is, um, this is what happens in, 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 uh, in preschool and elementary school. I mean, you know, people realize you can't um, call others names. You can't, you know, there are certain things you, you learn to do so that you get along with other people and that your speech adjusts to the presence of others. And I think that's usually pretty uncontroversial. There are flashpoints, of course, when someone is used to speaking a certain way at home, let's say, and they get to school and they speak that way and it doesn't fly or, or, or vice versa. So I, I think there's always been some tension around that. I, more, more recently, I think the tension has to do with the fact that when you emphasize critical thinking, as a primary virtue of the liberal arts or liberal education, as most do today, I think you have to be alert to the fact that sometimes critical thinking and its expression will make some people feel less included. And again, this is a whole problem, right? I, I, I was looking at some pictures of my uh, students from many years ago, and I, I saw a picture of this young woman who I had as a student in Scripps College and immediately came back to, to me that I gave her a D on a paper. I don't give that many, but I give some. And it came back to me because this for this student, getting a D was a wake-up call. 
And she said, hey, I'm not a D student. And she worked harder and she did, she did fine in the end of the class and all that. But another student might get that D or, find, or just be told you're wrong about X, Y, or Z. And they may feel like I'm no longer part of the community of the class. They may feel less included. If you're in an evolutionary biology class and you believe um, uh, in creationism uh, and you express that belief in an evolutionary biology class, you may be told, well, we're not going to talk about that in this class. For some people, that's going to feel like an exclusion. Well, because it is. <laughs> uh, or, if you, you know, take a fictitious example. If you're a flat earth person, you think the earth is flat and you go to your geography class and you say, I want to talk about the flat earth. They're probably going to say, no, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to spend any time on your issue. So I think all of those things have happened for a long period of time. What's happening more these days, and by these days, I mean really the last 25 years or so, is that there, as our campuses have become more diverse, as our online uh, classes have become more diverse, there are more occasions for someone to say something that the professor or other students find doesn't fit into the discussion. And so um, finding a way to um, pursue inquiry and, and to continue to do research on whatever the topic is at hand, while at the same time not losing students along the way, I think that's the, ba the balance. So students should feel safe enough to be included, uh, but they shouldn't feel so safe that they'll never be told when they're saying something that's wrong. Let's say it's a math class and it's clearly you made a mistake or that certain that that is antithetical to the contemporary scientific consensus. My question in this case will be what the safety is about, because you mentioned safety is feeling included. Safety is, is it also feeling in agreement with ideas? Because I wouldn't be tension come from that point. How do we define safety? That becomes a question. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I, you know, my view is that there is no formula for these things. And that's why my book, Safe Enough Spaces, is, is called a pragmatist's approach to these issues, because I think you have to find the appropriate vehicle to keep people safe enough so that they can feel offended, they can feel disturbed, they can feel even really shaken, but still continue. <laughs> so safe enough to continue learning. So uh, the examples I give in, the, in this book, Safe Enough Spaces, uh, you know, that, that a student shouldn't feel that she's going to be uh, harassed by the faculty member or by other students. The student shouldn't feel a threat of violence. Um, the, the student shouldn't feel uh, dehumanized. But the student should be prepared to have their fundamental beliefs in the world questioned, if not shaken. They feel, should feel safe enough to entertain ideas and theories and perspectives on the world that are antithetical to what they had previously believed. And so I, I think it's a mistake to, uh, as some of the free speech purists do, to say that you should always feel safe enough, no matter what. That free, you know, that if Alex Jones walks into your class and, and starts ranting about, um, I don't know, the, the new town being uh, uh, fabricated, that you should still feel safe. I, I, I don't think that's true. I think there are times when um, uh, someone uh, in, intervenes in a educational setting in such a way 
is to foreclose the possibility of further conversation or inquiry. And that means you're not safe enough. But if someone uh, has a, uh, has a, especially a teacher has prepared the class to entertain ideas they otherwise would have found foreign, antithetical, uh, disturbing, prepare the class in such a way, then they can, they can think about those ideas and continue, um, uh, and continue learning. So I, I use this phrase safe enough because um, really stealing it from the psychoanalysts uh, of uh, the early 60s and late 50, 1950s, where they said, you know, you, a good enough parent was a parent that didn't make you as crazy, <laughs> that didn't make you psychotic. If you tried to be a perfect parent, you're going to, you know, make your kids uh, crazy. And if you just tell your kids, go play in traffic to learn the laws of physics, that's not going to work either. So, so finding a vehicle to um, help a person build resilience while at the same time protecting them from, from lasting harm. And so I, I think it, it's a, most of the time it's pretty easy to make that call. There are occasions where it's, 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 a, it's challenging, but I think most of the time we recognize that students and, and our colleagues sh shouldn't feel intimidated or harassed, uh, but they should be open to entertaining ideas and forms of expression that may violate their, the, the norms they've held until then. Thank you. And you mentioned your book, actually, have it here. Uh, your book is great in terms of it puts uh, all these concepts of political correctness safe space in historical co context. For me, it was great in understanding how they developed in American higher education. And that's why I was just talking to Dr. Garcia about it. It helps, even if you don't agree with every idea, it helps you to put things in historical perspective. And my next question will be in this sense. Why or is it perceptional or do we hear about these cases recently more than ever? And why, it's, why it became such a phenomenon, this tension, these conversations about where free speech should end, how we can make our students comfortable. Why is it, why we hear about it so much recently? Well, I think part of the reason is um, that there's money to be made by criticizing students. <laughs> I hate to sound cynical, but, you know, Alan Bloom wrote that bestseller in the 1980s, and so many people have just kind of tried the, the same formula, op-ed, you know, get a pump and blow it up into a book. <laughs> and if you complain about young people, you'll find an audience of readers who also feel old and don't like feeling old, so I think there's that's my cynical explanation for, you know, like somebody like uh, I think I were talking about Roger Kimball in the book, you know, his first foray into this world of uh, criticizing faculty for being too leftist. He didn't mention political uh, correctness, but the next edition, he realized that was a that was a winning thing. So he added the word political correctness, you know, at least a dozen times. And I, I think this happens that people people uh, find a ready audience for complaints about the young. <laughs> and and um, so there's that. But then there were more serious issues, I think. And and the more serious issues are that are inequality and polarization. So uh, inequality, of course, uh, we know in the United States over the last 50 years have, has gotten much, much uh, worse uh, that, that um, uh, although uh, that we have made some progress on alleviating poverty, the, the gap between um, the poor and the super rich has only grown. <clears throat> and the 
erosion of middle the middle class has has um, has been a, a a felt problem and a real problem. And so I think in such a in such a situation, people are more uh, afraid of being on the losing side of an argument, of a job search, of college admissions. Because, you know, when I was graduating college and I told my dad I wanted to go to graduate school, but there were no jobs, he said, you could always drive a cab. I had an uncle who was a cab driver. You know, he could, we could fix you up, basically. <laughs> um, and, and I meet people today who are so worried that their kids are going to be uh, left out of the winner-take-all economy. And so I think there's, there's a tension there. And then finally, polarization. Uh, polarization in the United States since really, let, let's say, the beginning of the 2000s has, has really uh, accelerated. And so mutual suspicion has, has grown. And there's been a well-documented erosion of trust. In such a situation, uh, people are quick to take offense and quick to adopt a posture of self-righteous um, a condemnation of those who offended you. <laughs> and I, I think that, um, and, and, and again, there's a big market for it. I mean, every day there are thousands of lectures going on in the United States at colleges and universities where people are making arguments that are disturbing or in, and interesting. But if there are three of them that get canceled, you'll read about those. Because again, because people are, are have an appetite to to read about the follies of the young. And even among people who think of themselves uh, on the left side of the political spectrum or uh, liberals, they really feel they've been outflanked by the young. And been, you know, they're being called to account for their use of pronouns or their use of other kinds of language. And so they feel, they say, but I'm not a conservative. I'm a, you know, I was in the 60s or I was in the 70s. And I think they just, they, they don't realize they're old now, like me, I'm old. And young people are going to criticize you. That's their job in a way. But I think some of the boomer generation and just after that generation, I think we just don't really accept that young people are going to criticize us because we don't really accept that we're old. We are young. Let me just start with that statement. But uh, my next question, given that social and political context that you just described, and given that internal, interesting, I should say, potential tension between freedom of speech and safe space. What would be your advice to our faculty? What, what practically our faculty can do in the classroom to reconcile these two needs? Because our faculty is living it every day, especially if you think about like social sciences, right? I supervise uh, political science and sociology, Dr. Garcia's contemporary justice. We're having these sensitive issues on the daily basis. Every topic has sensitive issues what our faculty can practically do to make. I, I, I think it, it, it's, it's <laughs> painfully simple. And, and I mean that in the sense that the answer is quite simple, but it's sometimes painful to, to make it work. And, and I, I teach every semester and I teach courses uh, that are also extremely sensitive subjects. I teach a course right now called the modern and the postmodern. And uh, this week, it's about postmodern views of gender. Next week, postmodern views of race, about passing, um, about um, fluidity uh, and, um, and anti-foundationalism. So lots of <laughs> room for offense. 
So what works, I think, in a classroom, uh, and, and it may be it may be different online. You, I would love to learn more about that from you all. But what works in a classroom is to create a community of trust so that people will recognize that other people will make mistakes and to set the tone early that rather than get points, cultural points for, for showing someone else made a mistake, we should get cultural points, cultural credit for showing that we are able to forgive someone for making a mistake. And I say that very directly in the very beginning of class. I said, we're gonna pretend in the beginning that we're all friends. And they kind of laugh and nervously say, but then over time, maybe we'll become friends. But what does it mean to pretend we're friends? That means when I say something that you think is wrong or offensive, you're gonna help me figure out what's what, what to do about that rather than just to say that it was wrong or offensive. And it may be that you find out it wasn't wrong, but it could be offensive or that it is neither or that it was both. But what's, what we're going to do is as a class, we're going to work on this together. And there are certain ground rules. I do prepare my class. I don't believe that there's such a thing as trigger warnings. I think that's a silly uh, view of trauma. But I do believe it's worth telling students that, you know, this week we're going to be dealing with the topic of genocide. Or next week, we're going to be dealing in my class. I teach class where we watch a film about childhood sexual abuse. So I tell them that in advance. I write about this in Safe Enough Spaces. And I say, you know, if you're going to have a problem, a class of 100 students, some of them will have had personal experience with a sexual assault. So I said, if you're going to have a problem dealing with this in class, come and see me. We'll talk about it. We'll figure out something. Now, I've taught at least 1,000 students in that class. Uh, uh, I've never had anyone say they can't do it. I, I expect they would actually, because I and I asked them to talk to me about it. But I think by creating a situation where they feel supported, where they know that I don't treat them all as if they're some rich white guy who has never had a problem, <laughs> that I treat them as people who have different experiences that they bring to the classroom, that I respect that, but I'm also going to show a film about childhood sexual assault or about genocide or about racism or, you know, and, and then we, we talk about going through the material as a class, as a group, even I might say as a community. And I find that, um, you know, occasionally, I'll give you one example. Uh, I, I give them this thought experiment uh, where we deal with sexual assault. I give them a, a thought experiment. If you had a pill, that allowed you to erase all memories of having been attacked so that you no longer suffer from the, those memories or could give that pill to someone, a friend who was suffering from the, the, the retrospective or retro, uh, trauma, would you take the pill or would you give it to your friend? I break them into groups to talk about this. And then they come back and there's always great differences in their uh, response. One kid raises his hand, one boy, and he says, um, I don't think I should do this because I've never had that experience. It would be appropriation for me to try to put myself in those shoes. And I said, no, it's not appropriation. It's an assignment. It's a thought experiment. No one has a, such a pill, actually. <laughs> and you're going to do it because I want you to think about it. Use your imagination. He said, okay. <laughs> and he went and did it. And so, I, but I think there was a kind of foundation of trust rather than suspicion. I say to the same class when we deal with racism, I'm not going to use the N-word in class and neither are you. We're reading James Baldwin. We're watching videos with James Baldwin. 
He doesn't say N-word, right? And I said, well, we're not, I'm not going to change that. I'm not censoring James Baldwin. For some of you, that's going to be hard to listen to. But James Baldwin is, a, I don't want to say you should listen to him. He's, you've got things to tell, tell you, get, but get ready. It's not going to be, um, it, it, sh it shouldn't be shocking, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to change the material. Again, I've had many hundreds now of students who've gone through this, these cl this class. No one is, no one has ever, black, white, brown, has ever um, uh, had a problem with the tone of the class. They may have had a problem with the, you know, the material is challenging. So I think creating a context where you begin to build trust rather than suspicion, and where the professor does not convey they're afraid of the students, which often happens these days, like right? you're afraid to say something wrong. Or if you are afraid to say something wrong as a professor, you say, I'm afraid to say something wrong and tell them and say, so I probably will say something wrong. And so I ask in advance for your forgiveness. and I give it to you in advance. I found that students are just totally welcoming when that's uh, the context. I mean, whether it's in class uh, interactions or online interactions, I think it's a great idea. And maybe there are different ways to build this community of trust. But the core idea, I think, is very important. And we can build it through different, again, ways depending on the different modes of education. So thank you very much. And to wrap up, my last question will be, where do you think we're moving like in terms of future? Where are we going in terms of this issue? Can we predict or can we see anything? Yeah, I, I, I think um, it, it's very hard to predict right now because uh, we've been talking about, the, in some ways, the, the high class problems of college classrooms and whether you can deal with sensitive materials in a more or less thoughtful way. When all around the country, books are being banned, uh, library shelves are being emptied. The state legislatures are passing laws that forbid the, the teaching of critical race theory uh, and, and so on. And th this is extraordinarily disturbing and, and I, it doesn't sh right now seem to be slowing down. It seems to be getting worse. So I, I do think the problem isn't a bunch of students at a fancy college shouting down a speaker. The problem is elected officials deciding what books children's children will have access to or um, you know, tr or creating uh, scapegoats with uh, uh, LGBTQ people or scapegoats about critical race theory. This is really disheartening and I think very, very worrisome. Uh, I think as, as uh, college teachers and students, our job is to create spaces for conversations around difficult issues that are safe enough to entertain different worldviews um, but, but open enough to consider the possibility that you could be wrong, that you could be on the, that you could be doing things that are, are pernicious to other people you really should care about. And, and that, that, that in colleges, I think that the, all the ingredients are there to move in the right direction. But I do fear that in our polarized political environment in which anti-democratic forces are on the rise and seem to be gaining strength, that the, the, the real dilemma for colleges and universities will be, we may be told you can't teach this material that you know is important historically or conceptually because um, the most bigoted people have taken control. And I really do fear, I don't know how it works with 
uh, uh, the, the, the online classes that Southern New Hampshire gives, let's say if you give a class in a state with such rules, what happens? I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know the the law about that, but there will be pressure on 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 universities to not teach. There is already to not teach uh, history or literature that we know is worth teaching. And I do think that pushing back against that is really important. At the same time, at colleges and universities, we must cultivate on the faculty and among the students. Uh, appreciation for intellectual diversity. I, you know, I, I, I'm on a faculty that mo most of the people uh, have the political view that's far further to the left than most Americans. That's okay, as long as they don't use the, the, those filters in biased ways when they hire new faculty or when they judge student work. And, and we know they do use bias. They, we, they, bias is a real problem, not just around race and gender. Bias is a problem around ideology. And I do think that um, it's hard to protest against those people banning books if on our own campuses we use our bias to reproduce the political ideologies that we like ourselves rather than expanding intellectual diversity. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, to summarize, Today, we talked about tension, potential, real or perceived tension that actually historically have been also existing between freedom of speech and safe space. And as a solution, uh, you suggested that it's very important to cultivate intellectual diversity among students and faculty, and it's important to create those communities of trust, especially in the current context with increasing political polarization and still existing economic equality. If I, was it a right summary of today's conversation? I, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and that can happen in a variety of ways. I mean, I've, I've taught um, you know, massive online classes and, and, and uh, occasionally I'll email them, uh, the, the former students, something I've written. And somebody will write back to me saying, you know, you're a leftist, so-and-so, uh, and so and i do not want to get your stuff. And when I write back to them and say, well, I'm sorry, I, 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 if there's a way to take you off the list, I will. That change, then they write back nicely and say, oh, well, no, I'm, I'm actually happy to know, read. We were, I mean, in other words, you can make it, you can accelerate distrust or you can find a way to cultivate confidence and trust. And as teachers and as intellectuals, I think, finding ways to cultivate trust so as to continue inquiry is an important part of our task. Thank you. We are at the end of our episode. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our faculty, with our students? Well, I just want to thank you for uh, these great questions. I hope that in the, in the, in the, as agents of change, um, that you, you continue to find ways to learn from other people and to cultivate trust as well as the capacity for change. And I'm grateful to you for including me in these conversations. Thank you very much. It was honored to have you here. This is Leman Tash, your host for this episode of Agents of Change. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.